Hey folks, coming in hot with a little ad uh, for myself in my upcoming book. If you like this podcast, you are definitely going to like the book I wrote based on it. Unruly Figures, 20 Tales of Rebels, Rule Breakers, and Revolutionaries covers several people that I've never covered on the podcast. From queens of piracy in the Mediterranean to rebellious artists in New York to aboriginal resistance leaders in Tasmania, this book is full of rebellious folks you may have never heard of. It comes out wherever books are sold on March 5th. Pre-order it now. Link is in the show notes. This podcast is supported by Ritual. So, y'all, remember how I was in the hospital back in July? Well, it's time for me to admit that it was because I ate bad sushi. So embarrassing. I should have listened to my gut and not bought sushi at that random grocery store. Afterward, my stomach was so messed up from like weeks of antibiotics that I knew I needed to get a new probiotic added to my regimen. That's when my friend told me about Ritual Vitamins. They have Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one clinically studied prebiotic, probiotic, and postbiotic that can help support a balanced gut microbiome. I started taking Ritual right away, and the upset stomach that I was getting most afternoons went away. I love that Ritual packs so much good stuff into one minty capsule. And these vitamins don't need to be refrigerated, so it's like really easy to take with you when you travel, and y'all know I travel a lot. It's time to listen to your gut. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide, your insides. Ritual is offering my listeners 30% off during your first month. Visit ritual.com backslash unruly to start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com backslash U-N-R-U-L-Y for 30% off. Hey everyone, welcome to Unruly Figures, the podcast that celebrates history's greatest rule breakers. I'm your host, Valerie Clark, and today I'm covering the mysterious Herman the Recluse and the deal he supposedly did with the devil to create the Codex Gigas, better known as the Devil's Bible. It's a perfect story for Halloween. But before we jump into his life and the mystical things he might have done with Satan's help, I want to give a huge thank you to all the paying subscribers on Substack who make this podcast possible. Katie, Anna, Mike, Jim, Daniel, Casey, John, Andrew, Stefan, Skyler, Elizabeth, Honor, Neil, Michael, Rada, and Sarah. Special shout out as well to founding level subscribers Nick and Eric. Y'all are the best and this podcast wouldn't be possible without you. If you want to support Unruly Figures and my mission to make exciting history more available to folks, you can do that at unrulyfigures.substack.com. Becoming a paying subscriber will also give you access to exclusive content, subscriber-only polls, merch, and behind-the-scenes info on the podcast. Now, before we get started, I want to give a quick trigger warning to everyone. I do mention child sexual abuse in here. I don't talk about it for long, it's not a graphic discussion, and the person we're talking about today is probably not guilty of this crime. I will give a warning when it comes up if you would be more comfortable skipping ahead. Alright, let's hop back in time. We're going all the way back to 12th or 13th century Bohemia, to Podlazici to be exact. Podlazici is a small village in today's Czech Republic, but at the time it was part of the Kingdom of Bohemia. It was also home to a Benedictine monastery, though that monastery has since disappeared. It's famous, however, as the place where a certain monk, Herman, spent a harrowing night doing penance, or selling his soul to create the famous Codex Gigas. At this point, you might be wondering what the heck Codex Gigas means, and that's totally understandable because Codex sounds like a word that Dan Brown made up for the Da Vinci Code. 
but a codex is basically just a handwritten book, which replaced scrolls in the 4th century. Though papyrus scrolls are durable, they were, well, annoying. Once read, they had to be rolled back up, and the act of constantly rolling and unrolling the scrolls caused wear and tear that broke them down eventually. Scrolls could also only have text on one side, which we all know is inefficient, and there wasn't really a uniform way of marking a place in a scroll. I know in Harry Potter, Professor Snape is constantly assigning people essays like 12 inches on the uses of Dittany, but when scrolls are more than a foot long, citing where in a scroll someone says something presents issues. So the Romans invented the notebook by substituting parchment for papyrus. They would create large sheets and fold them to create folios, quartos, and octavos. Stitched together and protected by a cover, sometimes made of wood, these notebooks gained popularity for accounting, drafting text, and letters. Because of its resemblance to a block of wood, a codex in Latin, these little tablets or notebooks came to be called codexes, or codices. Codices didn't really get popular until the rise of the early Christian church, which used the codex style for early Bibles exclusively. They did this because the scroll was associated with Jewish religious texts and pagans, and the church really wanted to visually kind of differentiate themselves from those traditions. The codex was also practical. It was easier to store longer texts in one codex than in a single scroll. I mean, imagine trying to roll up a single scroll for the Old and New Testaments, right? The codex was handy, and it made recording and preserving knowledge much less daunting. Until the invention of the printing press, however, these were necessarily made by hand. So that's Codex, and then Gigas is Latin for giant. And the book I'm going to tell you more about soon is giant. It, it weighs in at 75 kilograms, or 165 pounds. 165 pounds, that's more than I weigh. The book is about 3 feet tall, about 20 inches wide, and 9 inches thick. I'm going to put a photo of a woman standing next to it in the transcript because it has to be seen to be believed. It's the largest known and preserved medieval manuscript that we have. So yeah, Giant Book works as a title, though The Devil's Bible is a much more popular name. Unfortunately, we don't know much about the author, Herman, at all. We're talking about an almost 800-year-old story, so that's to be expected. But we can make some educated guesses about him. He may have been genuinely a deeply religious person. Joining a monastic order is not a light decision, and his epithet, the recluse, sounds like he might have been even an anchorite, a monk or a nun who was enclosed into a cell attached to a church so that they could always be found. As we'll see, there's reason to believe this might not have been a voluntary withdrawal from society, though. Before taking vows, Herman might have come from a poor family. When medieval parents of children couldn't afford to feed them, they sometimes enrolled them in monastic orders, not just to get an education, but to make sure the kids could like eat and live. Children as young as five could be taken into monastic orders, but more often they came as preteens. Sometimes we also see younger sons and wealthy families taking up religious vocations because they weren't like gonna inherit anything from when their fathers died anyway. Um, but they didn't have to become monks. Other jobs, like the priesthood, would have been open to Herman after receiving this education, so it seems likely that he became a monk because he wanted to. In his mid-teenage years, Herman would have been a novitiate, someone educated in the ways of monastic life, but not subject to all the rules that monks have to follow. After a year of this education, he would have been eligible to take full vows and become a monk, which he clearly did. He might have never left the monastery again, as monks were expected to live within their communities unless they were excommunicated. Benedictine monks could expect an autonomous life from the outside world, but a good community within the monastery. The Order of St. Benedict is a pretty decentralized organization as opposed to Catholicism, where everyone comes under the Pope in Rome. 
Abbots of Benedictine monasteries have the right to set their own rules for the community, deciding what books to read, what prayers are said, etc. The only requirement is that they follow the rules devised by Benedict of Nursia in the late 5th century. That can be summarized as ora e labora, or prayer and work. Initially, Benedictine monks were expected to live lives of simplicity in a, quote, shared community of mutual aid and watchfulness, participating in the physical labor needed to make the monastery economically self-sufficient, as well as undertake religious studies and prayer, end quote. But really quickly, monasteries grew in wealth and power. The wealthy believed that they could ensure their entrance into heaven if they made great gifts to religious orders. So monasteries became the owners of huge swaths of land, luxurious reliquary, stockpiles of gold, and more. Technically, the members themselves were poor and everything was held communally with the abbot administering it. In practice, this meant that these orders could, well, buy slaves who did all the manual labor for them, freeing the monks up to do more contemplation and writing. This is how we get the rise of breviaries and illuminated manuscripts. Monks had more time suddenly in the medieval era. The 12th century was when the Benedictine order was considered to be at its most prominent. The century after, when our story probably takes place, is seen as a moment of decline and decadence for the Benedictines. But until then, the Benedictine monasteries were seen as, quote, the chief repositories of learning and literature in Western Europe, and were also the principal educators of people who could send their children to be educated. So this is the world Herman was living in, an order in slight decline, probably trying to desperately recapture the glory of their former power. At some point along the way, Herman did something bad. He broke a rule that earned him a punishment from the abbot of his monastery. What exactly he did has been lost to time, though it seems to have been breaking some sort of monastic vow. Now, as I mentioned at the top, if you're uncomfortable with any mention of sexual abuse, now would be the time to skip ahead about a minute, okay? So, since the only vows Benedictine monks took were poverty, chastity, and obedience, and poverty and wealth were out of his control, I think we can guess that this was a break with chastity, obedience, or both. I know what you might be thinking, but knowing what we know about sexual abuse scandals within the Catholic Church, it's actually possible that Herman's crime wasn't abusing someone, but actually reporting it to outside powers. By the medieval era, church leaders and monasteries were already dealing really badly with the predatory behavior of adult men against young boys. Diane Elliott, author of The Corrupter of Boys, explained in, explained in um, an interview that, quote, monastic organizations were generally self-policing and worked hard to ensure the instances of the clergy's sexual predation were suppressed. Monasteries were especially secretive, making it a heinous offense to reveal any discipline meted out in chapter to outsiders. Cases of clerical sodomy weren't only prosecuted when the scandal spread to secular society or when the guilty cleric was being investigated for something else. End quote. A cleric assaulting a young boy would have been considered a scandal and crime among secular society at this time, so it's possible that the great crime Herman committed was telling someone outside of the monastery about abuse that was going on within. It would have broken the rule of obedience to his abbot, which would have triggered a punishment before Herman actually assaulting someone would have. Whatever his crime, Herman was condemned to be walled up in the monastery, a forced anchorite. There are different versions of this punishment. Some say he was to spend the rest of his natural life there, working alone and in silence. Others say he was walled up to be starved to death, essentially the death penalty for his crime. No matter the initial length or intention of his sentencing, Herman begged the abbot for a chance to redeem himself. 
He promised to create a great codex that would contain all human knowledge and glorify the monastery forever. So he was locked in a room with some vellum and some ink and allowed to try. Again, lengths of time vary here. Some say he had a year to do this, some say just a week, but most stories say Herman had a single night to record all knowledge in the world and save himself. Well, Midnight approached, and at the other side of it lay a dawn that would lead to his death. And Herman was nowhere near done. Illuminated manuscripts take time, babe, and he couldn't have completed a single page in a night, let alone a book of this size. So Herman began to pray, not to God, but to Satan. He offered up his eternal soul in return for the book to be completed by dawn. And it was. Legend has it that the devil agreed to help and signed his work with a selfie. There's a full-page illustration of the devil within, right in the center of the book, in a folio that is otherwise empty. In the image, the devil is not in hell, which is strange for the time. He's shown between two columns and wearing ermine, a type of fur that was reserved for royalty. Very strange for a monk to dress the devil this way. Across from the devil is a full-page image of the kingdom of heaven, but... And if you've ever looked at medieval art, you'll find this very startling. The kingdom of heaven seems to be entirely empty. When the codex is closed, the devil is sort of inside the empty kingdom of heaven, which is an unsettling image for a monk to be making. But it was done. Herman was damned for eternity, but his codex was done. All 320 pages on vellum were complete, with both the Old and New Testaments, the Encyclopedia of Saint Isidore, a history of the Jewish people, a contemporary history of Bohemia, early medical texts, a comparative alphabet, a calendar, over 1,500 obituaries, a list of monks presently in the monastery, and then weirder, a five-page long confession of sins, a few spells from old Christian and Jewish tradition, and some instructional guides for exorcisms. As Kurt Sandvig pointed out in his episode of Paranormal Almanac on the Codex Gigas, a lot of people see the inclusion of exorcism in there as proof that the devil wrote it, which he thinks doesn't make sense. Why would the devil give you instructions on how to get rid of a demon, after all? I posit that if the devil did indeed have his hand in this book, then the instructions are a trick and won't work. The devil's around to torture, right? And what's more torturous than false hope? The five-page-long confession of sins is intense. It is a full listing of every sinful thought, word, and act Herman committed. It includes pride, envy, gluttony, lust, and awful bestiality. I don't read Latin, so I'm not 100% sure, but the National Library of Sweden didn't mention if this list includes same-sex desire. Confessing sins isn't an unheard of practice within Christianity, of course, but something about how long this is, like, I mean, remember, this is, these pages are three feet tall, and it's five pages long, so this is a very long list, and something about how long it is, confessed one right after the other in writing, surprises me. I, I wish we knew if the sins were in, like, chronological order. Did he start at birth and continue up to, like, that very night? Did he leave room on the page so he could go back and keep adding sins as he committed them? We'll never know. Anyway, I wish we knew how the abbot reacted when he unlocked the door and found Herman with his completed codex. I imagine that Herman, newly unpossessed by the devil, was slumped over unconscious and that the gigas was open to that image of Satan surrounded by empty ink bottles. It's worth noting that this legend originated in the 12th century and has remained virtually unchanged since. Centuries of scholars have studied this work and agreed with the original legend. Herman did it in a single sitting, which could only be possible if Satan was helping him. 
Just the fact that this Oral's tale hasn't changed much over the years is pretty impressive. Now, we don't know what became of Herman. Was he allowed to live after creating this? We do know that the monks of Podladici pawned the manuscript to a Cistercian monastery nearby when they were facing a financial crisis in 1229. It was repurchased the same year by the Archbishop of Prague and returned to the Benedictine order, but to the Benedictine monastery in Brevnov, which was famously quite rich. Around 1594, King Rudolf II, Holy Roman Emperor, requested the use of the Codex Gigas. He was interested in alchemy and had become obsessed with the image of the devil the Codex Gigas contained. He never returned it. During the Thirty Years' War, it was carried off by the Swedish army as the spoils of war for Queen Christina. It has remained in Sweden ever since. But on Friday, May 7th, 1697, a terrible fire broke out at the castle in Stockholm. Some enterprising librarians tried to save the book collection, but the fire was spreading too fast and the collection was too huge. Unable to pack the books up to safely get them out, they began throwing the books out the window, including the Codex Gigas. Supposedly, the book landed on someone below, severely injuring or even killing them. Of course, the binding was damaged in this act, and several pages of the book possibly came out. In fact, a lot of art dealers and historians think that at least some of these missing pages are out there, held in private collections. If your family has one of these pages, please send an anonymous photo in, we all want to know what's on them. Today, the book is behind bulletproof glass in the Swedish National Library, where you can go see it if you're ever in Sweden. And it's definitely worth seeing because the book is really beautiful. It's bound with wood, as all codices were, and it's, it's been covered in a white leather. The leather is embossed with a diamond pattern and crowns, and I think the royal insignia of the House of Habsburg. I'm less sure about what that symbol is, but it, it looks like a royal insignia to me. The four corners of the front cover have a metal fitting with two griffins on it each, and there's a metal eight-point star in the center of the cover. The inside is also beautiful. I'm going to read a very long quote from a librarian here from Bingham University because they've described the inside better than I ever could. So it contains, quote, illuminations in red, blue, yellow, green, and gold. Capital letters at the start of books of the Bible and the Chronicle are elaborately illuminated in several colors, sometimes taking up most of the page. 57 of these survive. The start of the book of Genesis is missing. There are also 20 initials with the letters in blue, with fine decoration in red. With the exception of the portraits of the devil, the author portrait of Josephus, and a squirrel perched on top of an initial, the illumination is all using geometrical or plant-based forms, rather than representing human or animal forms. There are also two images representing heaven and earth during the creation, as blue and green circles with respectively the sun, moon, and some stars, and a planet all of sea with no landmasses. End quote. The National Library of Sweden has digitized every page of this book, so if you want to take a look, there are 629 high-resolution photos that you can check out online. I'll include a link in the show notes. They also have a 15-minute film that you can watch. It's in Swedish, but it has English subtitles, and it's totally worth a watch if you're really into this story. Again, another link will be in the show notes. As I mentioned, we don't really know what became of Herman the Recluse. I hope he went on to live out his natural life, but we have to dig through old monastic documentation to find out. And unfortunately, the monastery in Podlazici has vanished. It was destroyed during the Hussite Revolution in the 1430s. Before we close out, I'm going to go over just like some facts and stories about the book, um, just because they're really interesting. First up, the depiction of the devil inside the book is thought to be one of the only medieval depictions of the devil inside the Bible. 
Now, according to the National Library in Sweden, the whole book was written all in one hand. There's no evidence that anyone else took over at any point. The writer also seems to have been in a stable mood the whole time. The handwriting never gets sloppy, there's no like authorial doodles, no sign that the hand who wrote it ever got tired or injured or sick. I cannot overstate this, this was not written in shorthand, it's not like scrawled notes. The handwriting is beautiful and tiny. It was written in Latin in something called Carolingian Minuscule. This lends some support to the theory that it was written in a very short period of time, even though any rational estimation would suggest that writing a book this size by hand would take about 30 years of work. The National Library in Sweden did say that someone could do this in about five years, but only if they worked around the clock and like never took breaks to like eat or sleep or go to the bathroom. So realistically, it should have taken 30 years of work and somehow it's all done in a single hand. Now, here's where it gets weird. The writing should show aging. If it was done over 30 years by a single scribe, the second part proven, the first part the only rational amount of time that anyone can come up with, the text should have at least gotten larger as he aged and his eyesight declined. But the text is all the same size. More strangely, the Codex Gigas has been combed through by historians and ecclesiastical experts, and there are no mistakes, nor omissions. He didn't spell a single word wrong, he didn't conjugate Latin incorrectly, he didn't skip anything while copying. The text is flawless from first page to last, which is pretty strange. This should be impossible. No mistakes in 30 years? Come on, I mean, this can't be explained. Now, remember that fire in Stockholm that I mentioned? Okay, so the story goes that the book was thrown out the window, probably by several people working together, right? And they resorted to this because the fire and smoke were spreading too fast to get the book out normal ways. Well, the book has no discernible smoke or fire damage. No evidence of ever having been near a fire in 800 years. None. Which, again, should be impossible because it's A, well documented the book survived this fire, and B, somewhere along the way, someone read this thing by candlelight sitting by a fireplace, which should infuse at least a little smoke into the vellum. But somehow it didn't. This, of course, further fuels the rumors that the book was written by the devil and is still protected by him. Now, remember those 10 missing pages I mentioned? Well, there's some thought that they didn't come out during the fire in Stockholm. In fact, the National Library of Sweden has confirmed that a lot of those pages were deliberately cut out, not like ripped in the frenzy of throwing the book out a window. It's likely that the rules of the monastery were included in these pages, but Benedictine monastery rules were generally very simple. They wouldn't have taken up all 10 pages, especially not when the pages were this big. We also know that the beginning of the book of Genesis is now missing, but it was originally included, of course, so we don't know what else is missing. Could be anything. Naturally, conspiracy theories have popped up around what could be in these missing pages, including, quote, secrets too explosive for mere mortals to know, magic spells, and instructions for the apocalypse. Again, if your family has any of these missing pages in like a Swiss vault somewhere, please call me. I won't turn you in, but we, we've got to see these. We got to know. Okay, one last spooky story related to the Devil's Bible. Apparently, in 1858, a guard in the library fell asleep on the job and was accidentally locked in the library after closing. When he woke, all the books were swirling around in the air, led by the Codex Gigas and the devil himself. When the guards reopened the library the next morning, they found the guard hiding under a table, disturbed by what he'd seen. 
They listened to his story patiently and tried to restore him to sense, saying it was just a hallucination or a dream. But quote, all efforts to restore him to his senses proved to be fruitless. The guard had to be institutionalized and never recovered. As I mentioned, today the Codex Gigas is displayed behind bulletproof glass and underground to protect it from damaging UV rays. If you're ever in Sweden, you can see it yourself. I know it's on my travel list now. If the legends are to be believed, Herman the Recluse created the Codex to ensure that his monastery in Porlazice would never be forgotten. And 800 years later, we're still talking about it, so it looks like it never will be, and Herman did his job. And that's the story of Herman the Recluse and his deal with the devil. Happy Halloween. I hope this spooky episode got you in the mood for the holiday this weekend. If you dress up as a historical figure this year, please tag me in your photos. I'm dying to see them. I myself am planning to dress up as Anne Boleyn, and I will of course be posting photos on the Unruly Figures Instagram. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Unruly Figures. If you did, please tell a friend about it. You can also let me know your thoughts by following me on Twitter and Instagram as Unruly Figures, and, or by joining us over on Substack. If you have a moment, please give this show a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It really does help other people find this work. Thanks for listening. Thank you to everyone who has liked and subscribed to Unruly Figures. I'm told that this is where credits go, but Unruly Figures is researched, written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, all by myself. So if you are into supporting independent artists, please share this with at least one person you know. If you're feeling really generous, rate this show and leave a review for Unruly Figures on Apple Podcasts. It really does help other people find this work. If you want to subscribe, you can do that wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Unruly Figures. Come hang out. If you want to see photos related to today's episode, come find this episode's transcript on Substack. It'll be full of photos. While there, you can also subscribe for ad-free episodes and behind-the-scenes content. That's all going to be at unrulyfigures.substack.com. That's U-N-R-U-L-Y-F-I-G-U-R-E-S dot S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. Until next time, stay unruly. Mm-hmm.